I remember seeing a deck by one of the big consulting firms. I won't tell you which one, but it was one of the ones that you absolutely know. And it, they charged $100,000 for it. It was 55 pages. And I kid you not, if you took all that stuff away, it basically said use digital marketing. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from George Polenikos. Sometimes there's a reason for the hype. My guest today, Michael F. Schein, is a self-described hype artist. He is the founder and president of Microfame Media, where he's worked with clients such as eBay, LinkedIn, and Citrix. He's also the author of The Hype Handbook, and his writing has been featured in Fortune, Forbes, Huffington Post, and Psychology Today. Michael, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Robert. It's really good to be here. Yeah, so I'll tell the story not to get more people doing this because I'm on a reduction of people sending me books, but you sent me um, a copy of your book. I get a lot of them. I don't usually read them. I was intrigued (laughs) by the cover. Uh, and I sat there and I kind of, I read the whole thing for two nights in a row and, and loved it. Um, I just, some interesting stuff. So happy to actually have some time to, to talk through some of these principles and how we're seeing them in our world every day. I'm honored. Thank you. That's high praise. So, yeah. So, um, uh, but please don't send me a lot of unsolicited books. I, you know, I play my wife, my wife had a one in one out rule recently, so I, I had to take a trip. <laughs> All right, so let's start with hype as an idea, and because I think it's often the term is pretty me more often than not used pejoratively, but you know I definitely get the sense that that you don't view it that way, and that was even the reason for writing the book. So how, how do you define hype? So I do have my own definition of hype. You know, I've decided to sort of take the world back, the word back, um, yeah. <laughs> in the way that certain marginalized communities have done, and I define it quite simply as any set of activities that gets a large number of people highly emotional so that they'll take the action that you want them to. And and that can be a positive action. It can be a negative action. It's completely amoral. It's just the fact that we process reality as human beings, the way we process reality. Um, and, and I felt comfortable using that term because of hip hop. I mean, that's one community that has always used that term not as a negative. And and it occurred to me that that's because that world started very marginal. It was born in the poorest area of the United States, quite literally the South Bronx. And people in that world realized that playing by the rules, or I shouldn't say playing by the rules, but doing A plus B and expecting it to equal C is a luxury for people who have options. And um, I just found that very interesting. It also seems like there is a piece of it, like I've heard people say the definition of entrepreneur, there are a bunch of different, but like, you know, making a lot happen with a little or otherwise, there, there's a thing, a hype where you get a greater outsized return than your spend, right? There are, there are obviously people that have a, endless resources to spend on marketing and awareness, but this seems to have, you get disproportionate return to, to what you spend. That's true. And I think there's another element and and this may be because I'm an accidental business person that I was kind of an artsy kid who liked crazy music and crazy books. And um, I always found that when done the right way, hype can add a lot of color to the world. You know, I used to love this band, the Sex Pistols. It was certainly before my time. 
but they were this punk band and it wasn't about the music. It was as much about that. They went on a TV show and cursed in public in a very starchy British society and got people worked up. It was, you know, so I think when done right, a little bit of hype can really make the world a more colorful place as long as you're not harming people. And as long as you're not deceiving people. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious how you came to be a hype master. You talked a little bit about your childhood. Like, what what did you study? What was your focus? Like, were you interested in these kind of newish things? Or I, I'm just looking to sort of connect some of the dots. Yeah. What's that quote about? You can only connect the dots backwards, right? Um, it, it's certainly that kind of thing. I mean, again, unlike probably a lot of the guests on your show, I most pointedly did not want to be involved in business. You know, I I looked at people involved in business and, you know, especially as a kid in the 80s and and 90s. And um, I feel like every young person now, instead of starting a band, starts a startup because they're very into technology. I thought of business as the boring stuff that my dad talked about, numbers and spreadsheets and annuities and all of these things that I didn't understand. So, I mean, I was interested in writing above all. I mean, I, I... wanted to write fiction, got a little bit of attention for that as a kid, uh, really liked music, really liked comic books, you know, different phases and um, had a mischievous side, wasn't a bad kid, didn't really get into trouble, but I liked to get a rise out of people, played in punk bands, which again is a very mischievous type thing. I studied English and writing, took some business courses just because I thought I should. But uh, I came to New York and my real goal was to, to with the uh, modesty of youth, change rock and roll, you know, in a band. And, and um, I had a band and that wasn't going to happen. But we were more successful than most people thought we would be. We uh, used to sell this club out, Arlene's Grocery on Wednesday nights. We had a residency there. It's a place the Strokes played. I mean, it was, you know, this. And looking back, I don't think it was because of our music. We used to say we would hype up a show. I never knew from marketing, right? I mean, that yeah. was not anything. That was the three Ps and all of this. So, um, you know, we got ourselves onto Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would be booed off and that that would drive attention. And we, we used to do things like that. So, um, yeah, one thing led to another. It didn't work out financially. I got a corporate job and um, learned a lot there in the beginning, but was unhappy after a while. And I decided to leave and become a freelance copywriter. And when I did, I had become an adult. So I was going to market myself. And so I learned search engine optimization and funnel. And I almost lost all my savings. I almost went out of business. Um, And it wasn't until I sort of looked back to my wild and woolly days and said, maybe this marketing stuff, this formal, you know, technology-based marketing isn't what I should be doing. Maybe I should do a version of what worked, but for grownups. And that was hype. And um, we can talk about what that was, but it changed my mindset. That was a real paradigm shift for me. And so is that when you started the agency? Well, not right away. So the first thing was I just needed clients. You know, Um, (laughs) I was a, uh, I figured because I was a good writer and had always gotten positive feedback for that and now had some industry experience. If I wrote about, a certain type of technology, you know, telecom and and the BPO industry, people would obviously hire me. And that was true for the three clients who did hire me. They hired me a couple of other times, but I couldn't make a living. So my goal was just to get writing clients. And um, the first thing I did was I talked my way into getting an article. I've told this story a lot of times, but I talked my way into getting an article 
a column in Inc. Inc. Not yeah. Inc. The tattoo magazine. <laughs> but, but um, I didn't even know there was an Inc. Yeah, the tattoo. Because okay. I told people that. And it, yeah. <laughs> so I've been a columnist for Inc. with a C, not Inc. with a K. So yeah. Anyway, so so I remember how uh, you know that rabble rousing part of me, and I was hearing a lot of advice from Gary Vaynerchuk that I thought was very wrong. I mean, I thought it was bad advice for young people that was helping him more than the young people. And I very respectfully called him out on that in print using a sardonic tone, but not insulting him personally at all, or would I, I have a lot of respect for him, but he was so agitated by this nobody that I was at the time that he responded to me by video. And if you, if you find the video, he, he went from making a lot of sense to by the end, sweating and rambling and like really getting upset. And it blew me up. I got all all of these people hated me and I was very scared. And then I got all these new followers and some (laughs) of them became clients. So I started taking that approach um, and getting a lot. My freelance practice started to do well. And then what I realized was, is that when you're a freelance copywriter, people aren't really paying for writing. They're paying for For the outcome of the outcome, which, which is leads and attention and all of the stuff that an agency should develop and it just evolved into an agency from there and and by the way the story i think if i remember from the book on that is that you basically accused him of of uh being better at selling hustle culture than hustle culture being successful for his followers right that's right yeah (laughs) and and i talked about why hustle culture is a great i didn't use this term but a great racket because if you tell young people Cults do this. If you tell them work around the clock, do it yourself for this amazing cause that we have, which is entrepreneurship, it bonds you to the guru. Because what if you hustle like a dog and it doesn't work out? Are you going to say, I listened to an idiot? Or are you going to say, oh, I believe I'm just not hustling hard enough? And cults do this. That's why they make their adherence work 90 hours a week. Now, I don't think Gary is doing that on purpose. I really think he believes what he's saying. But he keeps getting richer and his followers. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites 
is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. I'm curious, actually, again, I was reading as I was reading this and how that message is landing in. We seem to be in burnout, anti-hustle culture times now. So I wonder if that's changing naturally. But it's one of these things. I I want to chime in. He's modified his message. I mean, this was 12 years ago, but but no, he he knows that. And he's a smart guy and he's modified his message a lot. So it reminds me of when you know, having been in business and understanding scale, when there's a book about real estate and the formula that you can make, you know, a ton of money and you're selling that book. And I'd be like, look, if that formula works, you'd hire a thousand people under you to, to to deploy that formula. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't sell the goose, you know, you would have more eggs. Like, so I've always found it strange when someone is ostensibly sharing a magic thing that they could use unless it's a their purpose to, to actually they could do it better themselves so i i want to i just have to chime in about this because i have so much to say and then we'll move on okay. but get not to tell you how to do your show but i just you know, but um gary on one hand is better than the rest because he had this business wine library and wine library tv yeah. which was brilliant right now he's become this internet guru and that's what i was calling him out on but some of these gurus I can't pin down what they're successful at except guruing. That's like coaching. There's a lot of coaches out there now who are pretty failed at whatever they're doing now. Now, that's not, not always the not prerequisite always. to being a good coach. The best sports coaches don't seem to be the best players. But there's something about the type of advice they're giving or otherwise, again, like that just feels like, huh, have you done this before? Look, look into what they've done. Like, like yeah. this guy, Ed Milet, he gets up on stage and he, he talks with this gravelly voice. He screams at the audience. He says, you know, uh, um, you want to make a million a year, that cute little million a year. That's my jet fuel cost. Right. So I look up what, how did he make his money? Yeah. And there's some story about he was got an opportunity in world financial services, whatever the heck that is. He made his money telling people how to make money. I mean, you know, he's a professional business circus man okay yeah i see this guy grant cardone i he just he he and his planes are all over instagram here's how i got my plane yeah yeah and here's me flying my kids around in my plane and stuff it doesn't doesn't seem very humble but yeah it makes you want to buy the course of the book or otherwise so all right let's get right into the meat here i love the title so the hype handbook 12 indispensable success secrets from the world's greatest propagandists, self-promoters, cult leaders, mischief makers, and boundary uh, breakers. That says a lot in itself. So I, I know there are a lot of stories in this book, I think, that you had found over the years, and and you had your 12 things. Um, let's talk about a few of them. I, maybe we won't go through all 12. Um, I'd have you list them out, but then I think people will forget them. So you already kind of hinted to one, and we could, this, this could be probably the largest conversation, but pick a fight. So... You know, you picked a fight with Gary Vanderchuk. It seems like, will you tell the the Alice Cooper story? I thought that was a great story in the book too. I will. And what I also want to put a disclaimer on is that was the first fight I picked. 
Yeah. Picking a fight with a person is like the bluntest way of doing this. And it can and it yeah. can get you into some hot water too. You can pick a fight with an idea. You with can an have industry, a strong point of view. It, yeah. All of, right, exactly. Which yeah. is often a better road. But um yeah, Alice Cooper, I, I love this story. So Alice Cooper's manager was and, and actually is this guy, uh Shep Gordon. And he had a lot to do with them presenting themselves as the first shock rockers and all of this, because he had this guiding philosophy that while other bands, this was in the seventies, were trying to get other managers were trying to get their bands on the cover of say Rolling Stone for being the best band around. His idea was that every kid at some point in their life wants to break away from their parents, especially when they're teenagers. And if he could make his band reviled by parents everywhere every kid would love them and so his goal he would always say he'd rather get his band on the cover of newsweek for being a menace to the youth than on the cover of rolling stone for being a good band so he had done this really successfully in the u.s with things that seem quaint now but you know guillotines decapitating people on stage and you know and and um snakes and all this stuff that wasn't well known in, in yeah. 1972 but um, they weren't well-known in England at all. And they had booked a gig at Wembley Arena, which is huge. And about two weeks before the show, they had sold only 500 tickets. So this was going to be a colossal Out of like, fiasco. It's like 80,000, right? Well, this is yeah. the arena, not the stadium, but it's 10,000, 15,000, whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. Very large. Still 10%. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. It would have been a colossal fiasco. So what he did was he hired under the table a guy to transport a giant blown up billboard of Alice the singer naked with a snake draped around his nether regions and he paid him to break make sure that the truck broke down at rush hour in Piccadilly Circus which is basically Times Square, Times Square in yeah. London yeah so um there were traffic helicopters overhead news helicopters because they did the traffic report so this thing broke down. It was the 70s. So this guy's naked. He's a weird looking guy. It was a snake. It looked horrible. They immediately broadcast this to every TV in the country. People were so outraged in starchy England. Remember, this was the generation that like fought in the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, the stiff upper lip. They brought it up in Parliament. There were like stories of people kicking their TV sets in. They ended up selling out the arena and they became one of England's biggest bands. And the premise was they just they realized that to the story that you were saying about Sex Pistols too, right? If they if they could get the parents to hate it, then the kids would love it and be intrigued by it, right? It's funny, Johnny Rotten, the, first, the how he got into the Sex Pistols. This is just silly rock trivia. Was singing an Alice Cooper song for the uh, manager of the band. So we were talking about this briefly before the show. Like, I, I mean, this works, right? You you start a fight with it. You see the crypto people have all done this and. We're recording this actually as it's imploding today. The the next round of, you know, crypto implosion. You know, you're. It's funny. The the guy from Celsius. You know, your bank is screwing you. Those were his T-shirts that he wore around. At, you know, as his firm went bankrupt because it doesn't have FDIC insurance. But but yeah, use this anger. Like, bring all your money with us. Your bank screwing you. Like the other ones that will go through. I don't think they're as clear to people. This one, every politician is has you know used this as. Pick a fight, fear threat. I mean, I, I don't even know what people are for or against anymore. So 
it's clear that this works in good ways, in nefarious ways. It also feels like we are picking fights about everything now, you know, intentionally. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that it is a weapon that can be used for great harm, probably more than anything else in the book. I mean, this tendency is the basis for genocide and racism. Yeah. The other thing to say, and this is the paradox we have to resolve, is that it's baked into our DNA in a very real way. So I, I tell a story in the book that I won't go into detail in, but but anthropologists and archaeologists have, have almost definitively proven that our ancestors were the people who were able to cooperate with people they perceived to be like them and drive out people that they perceive not to be like them off of very arbitrary designations. And so the people who survived famines for various reasons, because of food sources, whatever, we don't, we can or can't go into it. But the point is that those people are our ancestors. So on one hand, it can cause great harm. On the other hand, we can't avoid it, right? So like I, I used to work in the Brooklyn writers space, uh, which is this writing um, workspace for people in Park Slope who are serious writers, whatever that means. And the people there are very crunchy granola for the most part. You know, they they don't believe in, you know, they believe in corporate greed and women don't wear a lot of makeup and all kinds of things. But there were zero PCs in this workspace. I saw zero PCs, 100% max, because they were against what PCs represented. That's corporate, even though a Mac costs more money and it was the most valuable company in the world at one point. So we all have this. So the trick is to take a stand against something that deserves having a stand taken against. You know, Martin Luther King, we always think of his I have a dream speech, but there's a speech uh, out there that you can find on the internet where he says, I hate injustice. I hate intolerance, right? And and that's something that everyone, that's the sort of common, it's actually a common humanity approach versus a division approach. Right. Yeah. But, But you're drawing lines in the sense. So if instead you say, I'm really for people getting along. I'm really for this. I'm really for that. Okay, that's very nice. But if, you know, um, FDR did this very well. Bring on their hatred. He was talking about the uh, big bankers at the time who didn't want any regulation. You know, bring them on. Bring on their hatred. Yeah, it occurs to me you should pick a fight that no reasonable person could disagree with, right? Uh, Because then that would help. In, in a lot of cases. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you want to draw lines in the sand. I mean, I think yeah. um, history has shown, or I don't know, Martin Luther King in the story that we have right now of our history is the hero. But I mean, the guy got shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he was hated by a lot of people. And so was FDR. You know, when I picked that fight with Gary, and again, much blunter and cruder than what I'm talking about here. It was authentic. Yeah. But what worked about it beyond that was that there were all of these other people out there who felt the same way I did. But while there were Vaniacs out there who had a name and a tribe and a leader, no one was leading these people. There was no, it was just a sense of unease. And when I said that thing, I became the man with the white coat that they could rally around. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. You said earlier, uh, you made me think of when you were talking about the the Mac thing. Someone I know was talking about sort of all the hypocrisy and double standards in society. And, and he shared a picture at a conference of a woman on her Mac in Starbucks with a F capitalism bumper that. sticker. Yeah, that's so funny. On the front of that. With Ray-Bans, which cost like $200. It was the yeah. first thing that I thought of when you said that, where you're like, yeah. huh, 
that doesn't make a lot of sense. We, we can't help it. That's the thing. You know, we look at other people's hypocrisy. And if you truly examined yourself, because I have tried to, yeah, we all do it. It's impossible not to. All right. So we talked about picking a fight. I, I had my notes here, uh, ones that I thought were interesting. Let's talk about give babies their milk. Everyone loves that title. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> it stands out. Yeah. It's funny. I, I wish I could take credit for um, that principal title or that chapter uh, title, but it's actually a phrase that's used by quite a few religions when they're talking about their missionary efforts. Um, the LDS church talk, you know, the, the Mormon church talks about it, uh, more fringe groups like the Nation of Islam talk about it. And it's this idea that you can't give a little baby a steak or hamburger, you know, as their first meal, they'll get sick or die. You give them milk and then you introduce, you know, soft foods, et cetera, et cetera. And so what religions know is that every religion until it gains critical mass is weird. All of them. You're talking about cities in the sky. And, and this isn't criticizing the religions. I mean, it's just not normal stuff. It's yeah. people walking on water and burning bushes and, you know, angels and demons. Right. So. Our own religion is always always makes sense to us, but someone comes up to a new one with a new one, and you're like, "That's crazy! Get out of my face!" Right? So, so what? Um, the best evangelists and missionaries know is that they don't start with that stuff; they ease it in. So, like, look at Scientology. If you walk into a Scientology center, they don't talk about aliens on the lips of volcanoes, which is something that that their higher level doctrine believes. It looks like a self help center. Looks scientific. There's equipment that assesses you. There's questionnaires. There are people dress normal. Um, and slowly but surely, you're like, this isn't crazy. What is this? This is normal. Everyone told me this was a, a weird thing. And then there's a little more and a little more. And so that helps. So mm -hmm. what people don't realize in business is that the better your stuff is, the more innovative it is the harder it's going to be for people to accept. So people think the opposite. They think I need to just differentiate myself. Right. I'm the, I'm the world's expert at this. I have the yeah. most stuff. I'm just going to, you know, versus here's the 101. You know, this probably goes into like nurturing marketing sequences. And I know brands totally. have figured out like, what's the thing that, you know, what's the thing that's sort of easy to digest? And then when do they show that they're escalating and I want to send them another thing? A hundred percent. So I almost have a harder time in the beginning with clients who really have innovative stuff. You know, sometimes we'll get an executive coaching company and they're really good at what they do, but they're not doing anything different. So you kind of gussy it up. You know what right. I mean? But someone has a piece of technology that is paradigm shifting and they're so convinced that it's a, as I've heard this word a lot, a no brainer that they almost get angry when customers and clients don't understand it. Well, and I'm sure they sell with feature overload, right? Yeah, and that's one side, or, or they even go a level down. They solve with benefit, because they, they that's yeah. become popular. So yeah, here's your pain point, and here's this, and here's that, and they try to sell into that, and, and that doesn't work. What you need to do is, is meet them where they are. What's their milk, right? Like, so LA, the self-help stuff works for Scientology, which is from LA because everyone's a self-help person out there. Yeah. That wouldn't work in Iowa. Well, that's also free, the whole freemium model. Like, just, just start using it, get it more useful to you, and then boom, you hit a paywall one day. Yeah, well, and, and at the same time, is there a metaphor 
Is there an analogy? Is there something from their world, you know, that that particular audience will be able to digest more easily? It's the reason Facebook, it's called Facebook because college students understood what a Facebook was. It was a freshman Facebook. It was only for college students. Now my mother uses it. She would have not used that in 2005. It would have freaked her out. She wouldn't have known what it is. (laughs) So funny. You want to leave breadcrumbs is the answer, you know, here. So let's jump from that to, I'm not going to go in order, but the the set down a rock for your followers. So someone pointed out to me because I don't tend to read. I'm very, I always say I will fall for a couple of conspiracy theories in my lifetime because I refuse to believe everything is a conspiracy theory. It just feels exhausting. But someone pointed out to me that the the brilliance, if you want to use that word, or Henry of, of QAnon, I, and again, because I don't read QAnon stuff, I, I would not know this, but they did yeah. <laughs> not tell you the answer, but they left these breadcrumbs that only led you in a logical conclusion so that you thought that you solved it. And then that was sort of the you had fi- the brilliance of of the strategy around that. It's funny. I don't know if this is um, the same as set down a rock, but your your point is very well taken because um, something that the... Uh, the right side of the media spectrum does. And this is not a comment on my own political beliefs. It's just the right is very effective at, at um, getting buy-in to their ideas. They always ask questions. So I, I saw um, Candace, what's her name? Uh, Can- I forgot. Candace something. I you're yeah. About, yeah. But she, um, you know, the break-in at the Pelosi house, which should be open and shut, she got up there and said, just asking questions. Why was it that, you know, Paul Pelosi was doing this? You ask the questions. I'm just a journalist. I'm just asking questions. And right. it's like, I'm just, <laughs> just asking, asking a loaded question. Right, yeah. right. But they do that a lot. And it's really effective because people yeah. say, well, how can you blame me for asking questions? You know, et cetera. Yeah, that's a, that's like the 13th type strategy. Right. So it actually seems it seems in between. You know, <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's milk and set down a, a rock, right? right? It, it's it sort of is, a bridge. It's the yeah. bridge. So talk yeah. a little bit about setting down a rock because I do think it's connected to, right. I think there's a stage there. Life is hard and it's very uncertain right this is going to sound really bleak but it's important because there's a lot of good in life but relationships will end people you love will die you know bad things will happen however much you prepare and it can it's really tough to live that way if you don't have certain unchanging things right if there's nothing that you can just cling i don't want to say cling that's the wrong word to say because we all do this and it's not a negative it's a good thing anchor that's a great way to say if you don't have anchors in your life it's very challenging and um almost impossible to live without anchors and this is where people use this for harm but you can use it for great good if you can find a place this is habit this is like habit formation right in a positive way yeah Yeah. So if you can find a place where there is no anchor and create that anchor, you can really move people. So um, one example that I use is um, how everyone's out there writing business books, right? As if just writing a business book will work. Sure. It's fine. It helps. But, you know, there's a big difference between a business book, which almost anyone can do now if they put the time in because of self-publishing, and what I call a Bible, right? So a business book might be a book called Leadership Strategies for the 21st Century. Okay, right. better than nothing, right? But a lot of people wonder, why did I write this book and nothing happened to my career? 
But these seven habits of highly effective. I was thinking of the 12 immutable laws of marketing as you said that, that book, right? Like, right. yeah, that was what came into mind. If, yeah. if it really, <laughs> if it really works, right? Yeah. So the 12 immutable laws of marketing, what the guy is basically saying to you is in this corner of the universe, you don't need another book. This is a recipe. This is a Bible that every time you have any doubt about whether you're going to have the leads that will make sure you eat tomorrow, you can look at this book and refer to it and always come back to it. The guy who creates that, if it works, even if it works a little bit, goes beyond just being an expert. They're, they're an idol. They become right. a guru. They become a cult leader. Seven habits of highly effective people. If you master these seven habits, you will be effective and everything in your life will be better. And because the habits are good enough, you know, begin with the end in mind. He coined that phrase, um, urgent, not important, all that stuff. I mean, the guy built a, an empire around that. So yeah. if you can create that that rock, that anchor. A manifesto, yeah. Yeah, and it, it can be in a lot of forms. It can be an assessment system. It's why, you know, MBTI, the uh, Meyer-Briggs has a lot of value, but it's completely, it's not validated by science, but no one cares. I mean, McKenzie uses it because they boil they say, you know, we're very nervous about hiring people for so much money that could just blow up tomorrow that have yeah. personality problems. But we give them this four letter code. And now our uncertainty goes down because so we can always refer back to that code. And if it didn't work out, well, we didn't implement the test properly or they made up their answers. Yeah. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that you're leading the witness here. Cause my next one, this was the one I actually think I had the, not that I had a lot of ahas, but the most aha around make it scientific Yeah, because yeah, I mean, you talked about Simon Sinek and, and positive psychology and just people grab the thing and just keep saying it and keep saying it. And again, people assume that it's, that it's true, even if it's not, or it's not valid. So you had a bunch of examples in the book on this. I'll, I'll let you pick your your favorite. <laughs> or, or less profound, even if it's true, if it's yeah. less profound. So, I mean, this is almost the opposite. It just sounds credible, right? It, it is, it's not that the science, it just, it brings an air of credibility that you can keep repeating, even if it's not, again, as you said with the Myers-Briggs, that there's no, I, I've seen Adam Grant talk about this a lot, that there's literally yeah. no scientific proof behind it. Yeah, I mean, this is almost the opposite of give the little babies their milk, because give the little babies their milk is the idea that if you have something truly innovative, you need to introduce it in a way people get. But a lot of our businesses 
aren't innovative and that's okay because they're good. They provide yeah. good value. So you're a, you're a, I don't know, you're an accountant, right? And you just always catch, you always save your clients money and you always help them budget properly and you give them good advice. That's not innovative, but it's very hard to get that across. Even worse when you have a very squishy kind of thing, like a leadership strategy, yeah. right? That might be valuable. So the idea is if you just sort of kick back and give your homespun advice and this and that, people might buy from you, but they won't really see you as top-notch expert, right? But if you throw ear candy and eye candy around it, and, and big consulting firms are great at this. Look at a McKenzie deck. I remember seeing a deck by one of the big consulting firms. I won't tell you which one, but it was one of the ones that you absolutely know. And it, they charged $100,000 for it. It was 55 pages. And I kid you not, if you took all that stuff away, it basically said use digital marketing. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as you're saying this too, I think there's people who use outside validation. And I think of a lot of organizations who come in, they say, here's our proven five-step proprietary process, right? They're not even claiming it's scientific, but it is it doesn't have to be, yeah. Proven and proprietary, and it's been used on a hundred companies and they've a great success. So you're not you're not trusting us, you're trusting this this process. I, I would put out to your audience that if you're in a service business, especially a small service business. Try taking something that you do that you almost do really easily, but that people get a lot of value in and you just do off the top of your head and create stuff out of it, a yeah. matrix, a five-step process, give them high-level Latinate sort of exalted names instead of, you know, Latinate meaning, you know, the the uh, matrix versus the system, right? Yeah. Put packaging around it. I used to do... um sales presentations, which are, I do strategy sessions. So I actually do a little bit of the work instead of um, doing a sales process. And I would put all of my stuff on five pages, like in a Word document, you know, and it was really a jam packed five pages and my close rate was really low. And I just sort of gave my, my perceptions. I changed it to like a 40 page document with graphics, with um, really high level language a lot of value in both. One just had a lot of print and didn't have that high level stuff and didn't have the grids and the visuals. My close rate is is many times higher. And for anyone who might buy from me as a result of this thing, I'm sorry, I'm just admitting it to you. You're, you're going to say, oh, now I know his secret and it'll affect you anyway. It's impossible to resist. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's the reason you dress up on a first date. Yeah, <laughs> put a package around it. Right. So that, that was my next one. And, and I think you you gave some great examples on the packaging and the phrase and the repeating it. And this one I've seen in politics, people getting really good at. Yeah. So there, there's packaging and then there's what I call spells, prayers and symbols. It's uh, This was something I learned in my research that I didn't know. Not the, the strategy, but the uh, quote unquote science behind it. But um, actual linguists and, um, you know, cognitive scientists who study children have looked at how we learn language. Because if you think about it, language is a really difficult thing. It's a miracle, right? I mean, you hear blah, 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 blah. And within a year, you're pretty good at understanding what it yeah. means. And within three years, you're completely fluent, right? And languages are complicated. So how do we do that? Our brains run statistics. So we hear all these sounds with whatever around us and our brains subconsciously 
start to parse and group patterns and then form meaning out of the patterns. So we're evolved. Whenever something makes those patterns easier to parse, we're evolved to be attracted to it, just like we're attracted to sweet things because breast milk is is sweet, right? So, you know, rhyme, it's basically just sounds that repeat, alliteration, repetition. And so if you use those things to adults, it's much more attractive. So, you know, if, if the glove don't fit, it don't acquit. We make fun of that, right? The OJ trial, it worked. He won the case, right? There were other things as well. But that repetition of the same rhyming phrase, we're in a debate. I'm going to give you all these policy positions. Make America great again, no matter yeah. what, over and over, right? Yeah. Alliteration. Been effective, yeah. Yeah, tune in, turn on, drop out. It wasn't... You know, psychedelics are an excellent way to expand your mind, and it should be explored by every young person today. Tune in, turn on, drop out. It's very effective. And what's interesting is it's this both is, the audio and the visual, though, right? There's a visual. It, it can be, yeah. I mean, visuals and and simple. I mean, you know, when you so, say yeah. America, America, great again. I mean, my the image in my head is the red hat. The red hat. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, if you'll notice, and I'm not comparing anybody to anybody here, yeah. I'm really not, because my whole thesis is that the content is irrelevant. But um, totalitarian regimes are really awful, but they're really good at uh, graphic design. And if you'll if you'll look at what they use, they use often red and black, very bold, very simple colors. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, hammer and sickle, swastika and red, red, black and white, very bold. It works, you know, it's funny. There was a story that um, I didn't include in the book because my editor didn't cut it out and she was right to cut it out because it was not right for this kind of book, but it's so fascinating. So um, there was this guy, um, Ernst, I think it was Hamstengel. I don't pronounce the name properly, but he uh, was an exchange student in the United States at Harvard in, I think, the 20s or the teens. And he played Oregon for the football team. And this was before mass media was so big so he had never really seen american football and he would see people yell fight harvard fight harvard fight 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 he was german so he went back to germany uh in the 20s the economy collapsed and he became radicalized and he was one of the first members of the national socialist party the nazi party so um seeing hitler speak in beer halls and things like that so he knew hitler very well and hitler the movement was growing and growing and hitler said to this guy we're almost there, but we need something to just mobilize people. We need them to like get into this. And he said, you know, I used to go to these football games and these starchy Ivy League kids would yell, fight, Harvard, fight, Harvard, fight. And they would just get worked up into a frenzy. It was like they turned into a mob and Hitler got very excited. And so Sig Heil, Heil Hitler, Sig Heil, Heil Hitler comes directly from the Harvard fight chant. And what that proves to me beyond it just being interesting is we are designed to respond to stimuli and it can be for nazism which is one of history's greatest crimes or a fun football game or martin luther king but if you extract the content the underlying psychology is the same and we can't avoid it so my goal is to put this stuff in the hands of people doing good stuff making the world a better place because for whatever reason the bad guys get it a little more easily they don't need the help I was going to ask you that opposite question, which is when you see people using these things for wrong, how, how do you neutralize some of them? I think it's hard. I, I think I hope I'm doing my small part to help with this. <laughs> and I hope people yeah. get this because I think people get the wrong message from my work. 
I really find it a source of great psychic pain that people that I think are bad people that make the world a worse place. And if you knew me better, you would know why I find this so horrible. Are really good at this. (laughs) Are so good at it. And I get the mechanics and I see it working on people and it's so hard for it not to work. And what I understand, because I am a bit of a realist, is that it's never going to stop working because people want something to, to grab onto. They want the anchor and it's what anchor is in the right place at the right time. And the problem is that on balance, and, and I emphasize on balance because there are a lot of really wonderful people who get this stuff, who get the packaging and the hype, but they feel that it's almost cheating. They feel that my products, my ideas, my causes, my message is so good that if we have to accept the realities of human psychology, there's something debasing about that. And what that does is that opens the playing field to the ones who don't have such compunctions. So it's really important for me to make the case that it's almost your ethical obligation, as long as you're not lying, and as long as you're not harming people. And I really do mean that to frame your stuff in a way that gets people excited and mobilized because the other people are doing it anyway. And the best weapon is to have a good offense. Yeah. But, but also I think there are cases where again, as humans, and let's just use kind of politics and how we could turn down the temperature. You know, the strategy I've seen is rather than saying Michael and I are both people that want the best for this country, but we have very different views of how it's going to get there. The answer is Michael and his party are trying to destroy the country. Yeah, right? It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And, then, and then Michael says, but they, they are trying to destroy, which is funny because how could both people trying to, to destroy? And, and I don't know. I just think for a moment, people are like when they hear that, I think, and they unnecessarily participate in this, you know, when they could, could, turn down the temperature on those sort of phrases a little bit. I think there's another way to think about it, though. And I agree with what you're saying. And I haven't thought this out until you said what you said. (laughs) Well, we'll I did it. So go ahead. No, no, no. (laughs) But I would argue that by saying what you just said, you're harming people. That violates my prime directive. Because if you're saying in a democratic system that the other party is evil, or if I lose, it's rigged, right? This is the quintessential example. That if I lose, the only way I could lose is if the other yeah. people cheated. So so can I talk about the details? Because I know that yeah. that might alienate people. So however you feel about politics, Donald Trump said, if I don't win the election, it's rigged, right? Both, so, by the way, he said that both times. I think people forget that he said that the first time, too, before the election, right? That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. So being that that's a given, it's on video. Yeah. I'm not going to make a moral judgment about that. There are Democrats that are now saying, well, we have to fight this fire with fire. So they're saying that if every Republican, any Republican that wins is not just someone I strongly disagree about, but they're disgusting. They hate America, you know, in a Democratic system. If you are doing that, you're harming our system because the system is based on the idea that we're not enemies, that we're adversaries. Yeah. So what if you instead played a chess game and said, what other idea can I pick a fight with? I'll pick a fight with that idea. With the idea that any person who is framing people as an enemy instead of an adversary is harming democracy or something. In other words, Martin Luther King didn't say, you know, white people had been abusing black people for 500 years. Frankly, the Black Panthers and Malcolm X, who had were completely understandable, I might have been like them, said, 
white people are the enemy and the chickens have come home to roost. And that gave the FBI and gave a lot of white America an excuse. They said, I see these people are exactly what we thought they were. You know what Martin Luther King did is he didn't pick a fight with white people. He could have. He would have been well within his rights. He picked a fight with Jim Crow, yeah, with intolerance, and it was much more effective and much more ethical. Just depends on what your goals are, right? <laughs> if you just if it's win at all costs, then your goal is different, right? And and I I am putting on the record that that's abysmal to me, and that's despicable yeah. to me. Yeah, there's an ethical standard. You must make people's lives better, and you must not deceive people. And if you're not doing that, then I have no room for you in my life or in my headspace. All right. Well, I'll make it a little more fun as we wrap up here. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, but I, I, it's an important discussion right. because, again, yeah. I think I, as you highlighted these, you know, I'm seeing lots of political campaigns and, you know, built around this architecture and being like, this is obviously it works, but sometimes just because it works doesn't mean we should. And I know that's not what you're advocating, but I was thinking about how do we how do we use the knowledge of it to identify it? But I have to say, um, yeah. thank you for bringing that up, because I think that it's very easy to misunderstand this work and say, do whatever you need to do to get whatever you need to get. And I think that you forcing me to clarify that was very important. Yeah. And just to be clear, I, I actually wasn't implying that the work said that. I'm just that the people that are really good. Good at this, yeah, or are deploying those tactics. No, no, but I think it can be misconstrued that way, is what I'm saying. And yeah, I think yeah. that I'm really, I really appreciate that you pushed me to clarify that. All right. So, with that meta question, then I'll ask yeah. you is how, how did you create hype for this book? Yeah, if, um, fortunately, it went well. <laughs> um, one of the things that I did that I was really proud of, which was, um, essentially strategy number two. Um, there were a lot of things I did, but one of the things I, I thought was quite clever and that worked very well was strategy number two, the build uh, your own secret society, which means make it look like all of your uh, successes happening grassroots, or, or at least don't disabuse people of that notion, but create connections beneath the surface that can accelerate your growth and do that by giving up what's cheap to you and valuable for them. So at the time, I was writing a column for Psychology Today, and I knew that um, being on podcasts in a very concentrated period of time, like if I'm on 50 podcasts in two months, it creates sort in the same field, it creates this sort of cloud of attention. It looks like I'm everywhere at once, but I didn't know how to book myself on those. So what I did was I said, what's something that's easy for me to give, but that's really valuable to other people? So I contacted a bunch of podcasters that were great and that I admired and that had the right audience. And I said, because I needed to write an article, I had, a, had to write a lot of articles. I said, hey, you're on my short list for an article about the top 25 podcasts about this and this. Can I interview you for that? Oh, by the way, I happen to have a book that came out called The Hype Handbook. And so I interviewed them about it. And I was very honest. I only put people on the list who I thought were good. I only put people on the short list who I thought could be on the long list. But I would say 75% of those podcasts booked me because I gave them something that was very to be called a psychology today top 25 podcast is really valuable to a podcaster. But for me, it was one of the four articles I had to write a month. I need articles to write. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was super super successful. I mean, that drove sales and drove my business. You know, people heard about what we did and it just sort of created this chain effect. Smart. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I mean, the lesson there is I think hype, I think hype people think it's all about, you know, building a following person by person and being very over the top in public. But sometimes it's about what you do underneath 
you know, below the surface. No, that's smart. Thanks. <laughs> Michael, last question for you. I always say this is multivariant. It could be singular, repeated, personal, professional. But what's a mistake that you made that you've learned the most from? You know, um, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but I've made so many and I've learned a lot. But um, even to this day, I beat myself up for every one of them. I mean, it's not healthy. I should just treat it as a as a scientific experiment. It's what I tell my clients to do, but I always beat myself up. But I, I mean, from the very beginning. So the reason I left my corporate job, it was a business process outsourcing company, which is a nice way of saying call centers. And so I was the in-house writer, among other things. And I said, wow, we we never could find good writers who wrote about business process outsourcing. I could be that writer. It's a very big industry. So people would come to me. So I quit my job to be the business process outsourcing and telecom copywriter. I think I worked on one job in that. There was no market for that whatsoever, you know? And based on that assumption, I almost went broke because everything I did was, you know, I, I spent so much time marketing to that community. The good news is, if I hadn't been deluded like that, I would still be in a job I hated. So I think, you know, a lot of times you you work on assumptions that you had. And if the mistakes are small enough and don't put you out of business, it's how you figure out sort of the counterintuitive, interesting path. All right. Good takeaways for everyone on that. So where can people uh, learn more about you, uh, hype, your work, any of this stuff? How can they find you? Well, the one thing I learned about traditional marketing or took from traditional marketing is that you should always have just one call to action. So, you know, I'm sure you'll put the name of our company and the yeah. website and all that in the URL. But if you want to learn anything about me and track me down, go into Amazon or wherever you buy books, type in the hype handbook and, and read the book, you know, for whatever small amount of money it costs, you'll learn all my secrets or you'll think I'm so great that you'll uh, contact me and we'll do something else together. You realize you realize he's used all the principles uh, against you. So exactly, <laughs> but that's what's so beautiful about what I do. Because when people come to us and they're like, "You use the principles against me," and I say, "Exactly, wouldn't you want me to do that for you?" <laughs> you know, works very well. It's <laughs> yeah. a good line, or not against yeah. you, but to draw me in. So, right, uh, right. Michael, thank you for joining us. As I said it's a fascinating uh, topic, and I think we can all, both business, personal lives, elsewhere, uh, learn something by by diving more in it. So, I'd encourage everyone to check it out. Hey, thanks. This was a great interview. I really appreciate it. All right. You can learn more about Michael and the Hype Handbook on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. 
Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.